be seated. <clears throat> well, uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to go to Mark chapter 9 this evening. Uh, Mark chapter 9, we'll just be looking at three verses, but uh, in a few minutes putting them into their context. I think I will read to you, though, just these three as we begin from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38. Uh, the Apostle John here speaking to Jesus. Mark 9, 38. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Now let's pray together. Uh, our Father in heaven, we uh, pray for the Lord's wisdom, for his uh, humility, for his insight in our uh, difficult and fractured day. We long to see your blessing upon your church in every way for uh, its uh, ministers to be committed to Christ and holiness, to follow on in his way. For those who yet struggle, for those who um, are uh, limping in so many ways along and yet doing his work, we, we pray that uh, we might, with uh, also Christian charity and compassion, love and embrace them so far as Christ has preached. May we indeed rejoice. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Dwight Moody never finished the fifth grade. Um, he couldn't spell. His grammar was sometimes atrocious. Um, he never became an ordained minister, and yet very few people in history have, have had as fruitful an evangelistic ministry as Dwight L. Moody. He came to Boston as a teenager, and his uncle took him on as a shoe salesman. The one condition was that he attend Mount Vernon Congregational Church, a believing church at that time, that was important because the young man had been raised in a Unitarian church, which of course denies Christ's divinity, which doesn't preach the need of a savior from our sins and so forth. Well, all of a sudden, Moody went and was hearing these things and then picked up a Bible and tried to read it, but the truth is he just couldn't understand what it, what it said. Well, to make a long story short, one day his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, who said that he had never seen anyone whose mind was as spiritually dark as Dwight's, came to Moody's shoe store. And that day, April 21st, 1855, he called upon Moody to follow Jesus. And that day was like the day of Pentecost for Moody. The Spirit came down upon him with power, it was the first day of Moody's new life in Jesus, and immediately he began telling others excitedly about the Lord Jesus. Uh, how excitedly? Well, estimates vary, but Moody is regarded to have personally led to Christ one million people. Not, not, not preached to one million people, that would have been amazing enough, but 
regarded by Christian historians to have personally led to profess faith in Christ one million people. All this before television or even electronic amplification. God chose a converted shoe salesman to be the leading evangelist of his day. What are we to make of this? Here's a man who was not trained, who was not examined, who was not ordained by the laying on of hands. He wasn't under any church's oversight, at least not beyond a day or two here or there. He sent himself into the ministry. He didn't do anything the right way. He, he was a cause of great uh, anxiety and confusion. He went to Scotland to preach in the free church ministers. Good men on either side said, oh, can we support this? Can we not support this? It was hard to know what to do with Moody. Though he was what we call an evangelical today, he taught a number of profound errors out of ignorance, I hope, but nevertheless, serious errors. Nevertheless, even Moody's hardest, harshest critics inside the church confessed that there was no doubt that the Lord had used him mightily in the salvation of a great many souls and the renewing of countless lives. God blessed the evangelistic ministry of Moody far more than those who were doing the right things in the right way. And this is why I have some, some love-hate relationship with Moody, some, some, some interest still. Friends, uh, the, the church is filled with people like D.L. Moody. Um, this morning I, I mentioned uh, C.S. Lewis and I quoted him approvingly and considered how many people in the 20th century uh, have become Christians and grew in Christ through his writings, which our family has enjoyed. Um, the fact is that Lewis was very seriously wrong about a number of very important things that he said. I try not to point that out very often, um, but there were many, many safer and better guides to Christ and to theology in his day, but for some reason, God has used C.S. Lewis more than most. I could go on and multiply examples, but how, how are we to respond to such things? Um, let's consider this matter tonight under two headings. Those who don't follow us, and he who is on our side. Those who don't follow us, and he who is on our side. First, those who don't follow us. Picking up again in verse 38, Teacher, we saw, one, saw someone who doesn't follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. A actually, it seems that they weren't even successful in forbidding him to do that work. Uh, the ESV rightly has, we tried to stop him, similar uh, NASB and other translations, without getting into the grammar details. There is a subtle shift in the verb tense. Uh, to the imperfect, indicating, it seems, that their attempt was unsuccessful. They, they tried to stop him, but he didn't stop. We were forbidding him, but he went right on. And why did they tell him to stop? I mean, you might think that in that day when relatively few people in the world believed in Jesus, that they would be happy to find somebody that they'd never met, uh, not only believing in Jesus, but also ministering in his name and setting people free from demons in the name of Jesus. But they were not. Uh, they might have been genuinely concerned that the Lord's name or reputation might have been harmed by this man. I mean, who is this random man whom they'd never seen before, whom Jesus had never commissioned, ministering in his name, that is, with his authority? 
I mean, these disciples had done it the right way. They had been chosen. They had been called. They had been ordained. They'd been commissioned and sent out by the Lord. They were his authorized representatives in the world, and they knew what they were talking about. And the Lord had set them apart very formally and with great solemnity. He had given them the best education in divinity that anyone had ever received. Three years with the Son of God. Days and weeks and months, he taught them and prepared them for their work and told them what to say and how to minister. How much teaching had that man received? Well, they'd never seen him. Um, had he sent himself into the ministry? Was this man a worthy representative of the Lord? Would he teach the wrong things? I mean, almost certainly yes. Would he harm the work? Would he bring shame on the name of Jesus? Oh, don't know. We can understand the disciples being concerned about the Lord's honor and mission as they tried to prevent this man. All very valid concerns. Although, if we read a little more carefully, we can see that perhaps their motives were not entirely pure. For if you just look a few verses up, you will see what they had just been talking about and what was leading to this part of the conversation. Going back just a few lines to verse 33, uh, Jesus asks them, What was it you were disputing among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. There was this rivalry, and they were being jealous of each other. And uh, what preceded this? What caused that discussion? Well, a few verses earlier, those disciples, in front of a crowd, mind you, had just tried to cast out a demon from a man's son and were unsuccessful. The man comes to Jesus and says, hey, I spoke to your disciples and, and asked that they should cast it out, but they could not. And verse 28 here, just above this, his disciples come to Jesus privately. Why couldn't we cast it out? They had failed to cast out a demon in front of all these people. And here's this man who was driving out demons. He's doing what they were supposed to be doing, but were not able to do. He's doing it better than them, it seems. So I point out to you that it's a common defense mechanism to criticize people who have been more successful than we have. Uh, I look around at other churches, for example, that are far more fruitful in their evangelism. And you know what I think? What compromisers? Their message and their ministry bears little resemblance to the Lord. They're not giving people sound biblical teaching. They're just pandering. It's also superficial. Their little doctrinal statement is barely two short paragraphs. Who are these self-proclaimed pastors and these independent churches who set themselves anyway? That makes me feel better. <laughs> is my zeal for the Lord, is it for his name and his cause? How foolish all that is, right? These disciples had been seeking their own name and greatness, challenged when they found a man doing what they were being called to do successfully when they had failed. And even when they bring this matter up to the Lord, they say, teacher, we somebody, you saw somebody who doesn't follow us. We forbade him. He doesn't follow us. This man who hasn't been called and trained and commissioned, not like them. I mean, it doesn't seem right. And so John said, we forbade him and we tried to stop him, but but Jesus says you've come to the wrong conclusion. Perhaps these other matters have clouded your understanding and judgment. So we've considered those who don't follow us. Now we consider those who are on our side. He who is not against us is on our side, Jesus says. Is this man against you? 
he doesn't follow with us, but, but whose side is he on? Verse 39 again, do, do not forbid him. No one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Well, well what does this mean? Does this mean that we should therefore approve of everything that every Christian does in the name of Christ? No matter how strangely or poorly. Does this mean that everyone should be free to serve Christ in his own way? Above criticism? No, certainly not. There are far, far too many verses to the contrary. I could mention many from Jesus himself. Paul, for example, writes letter after letter to the churches and their leaders to straighten them out, to correct their problems, their faults. He left Titus to settle the church in Crete and establish elders because they were false teachers in every city leading households astray in the name of Christ. We, my point is, we, we certainly don't have to improve, approve and embrace of what everybody is doing as long as they say that they're sincere and ministering in the name of Christ. That, that's not what we're saying. It, it's not saying we should never rebuke or criticize anyone or that we should just live and let live if they name the name of Jesus. No, I'm not saying that. But the passage is saying something that's challenging that there are people, perhaps many people, who simply don't follow with us. They, they, they perhaps do not do things the right way. They perhaps do not submit themselves to anyone's authority. They're off on their own. They're perhaps ill-trained, even confused, teaching people who knows what. But they are, in fact, nevertheless serving the Lord as we are. And at the end of the day, they're on our side. They don't need to stop what they are doing right anyway. And insofar as they are doing what is right in the name of Jesus, we should be very glad that they are doing so with us. Or as Thomas Watson famously put it, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Many crooked sticks in the history of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, and since. Paul, Paul illustrates this uh, magnanimous spirit. He was in prison, and other preachers were out there opposing his ministry, stealing his sheep, so-called, preaching Christ out of rivalry. Paul, great man that he was, says, well, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. It's really not about me. Uh, they have major problems. They, they're not submitting to apostolic uh, authority. They're preaching Christ out of very poor motives. All of that's true. Paul isn't approving of those things. But they are preaching Christ. And in this, the great man says, I'm not upset. I rejoice. We look today at the fractured and confused state of the church in the world. So many synods and denominations, so many churches that don't even have that much going for them. But aren't you pleased at least that God has so many people and churches in the world, no matter what else they are doing, they are preaching Jesus Christ in whatever way and for whatever reason. Is that not an important and good thing? Our church has a very full confession of faith and a thoughtful directory of public worship and biblical church government, and so forth. We have a very serious concern for God's Word and living up to what we have already attained, as the Apostle put it. All of that 
extremely important. We absolutely should be concerned about those things. There is a right way to go about it, we are sure. But that does also place us in particular danger of being uh, critical and sinfully proud when, and when things are not going as well for us, envious or insecure makes us more prone to see shortcomings of others and to explain away our own shortcomings by such a comparison, especially in those who are the closest to us. And this is a very interesting thing that really reveals the heart. The hymn writer John Newton of Amazing Grace fame, right, he, he said that there is a principle of self in each one of us which causes us to despise those closest to us who differ from us, hold different opinions. Okay, so um, in, the, in the OPC, we looked way down our nose at the PCA, just a fact. If you were an independent Baptist, you looked way down your nose at those Southern Baptists. I, you get what I mean. It's, it's, it's a strange thing that we are prone, with this principle of self in us, to despise those who are closest to us, but who differ from us. And they may not be doing things right, don't get me wrong. But can we not thank God for what they are doing? In the middle of the 18th century, George Whitfield was coming to Scotland to preach. Those were heady days in the First Great Awakening. Uh, a great, great many people being converted in this ministry. Now, you have to understand that uh, a few years earlier, the Associate Presbytery, the A of our ARP, had seceded from the Church of Scotland over critical issues, the free offer of the gospel, the control of the church by the state, the excommunication of its most faithful ministers, and so forth. The Church of Scotland had capitulated on several very important issues. The, 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 Kirk, the Church of Scotland was in the wrong, as they themselves later admitted. And it was at this time that Ebenezer Erskine, a leading associate Presbyterian minister, wrote to George Whitfield, May 16, 1741. He said, uh, Mr. Whitfield, we are so glad that you're coming, but we would ask you when you come if you would please limit your ministry to our associate congregations. You know, we've stood up for Christ and His Word in these difficult days. We've been persecuted. Some of the most eminent ministers of the Kirk have been cast out. We, we hope this isn't a permanent separation, but at the moment, many faithful ministers have joined us, deciding they just can't serve in the Church of Scotland. And if you come to preach in, in their pulpits uh, in the Church of Scotland, this will just validate what they've been doing. All of Scotland will take notice of this. Whitfield did not comply with Erskine's requests. He preached anywhere that would have him. Even very large, unfaithful, largely unfaithful churches, certainly with unfaithful ministers, who'd persecuted the Erskines on these very matters. Um, was Whitfield right or was he wrong? I mean, I think he was wrong. I certainly would have done what he did. I think he was wrong for the same reason that I wouldn't accept an invitation today to preach at a liberal church in town or something, but I, but I do have to tell you what happened. God brought a tremendous revival blessing on Whitfield's ministry in Scotland, as he had in England, as he had in the United States. Uh, thousands of uh, the colonies at the time, right? Thousands of people 
were converted. Some ministers were converted. Does that mean that Whitfield did the right thing because it ended up so good? No. Does that mean it doesn't matter what you and I do? No, of course, it does not mean that. But it does illustrate that just like the exorcist man in this passage, God, for whatever reason, does often pour his power and blessing on people who don't follow with us, but who are nevertheless on our side. And that is hard for us to see in the moment. And insofar as Christ is preached, despite all the failings, all the falsehoods, insofar as Christ is preached, we should rejoice. Drive around. Uh, you'll find, um, you, you name it, large evangelical, non-denominational, Pentecostal church, uh, you name it. Uh, well, you say teaching and doing many things that they shouldn't, that aren't biblical. And just down the road from them, you'll find small churches absolutely committed to a biblical faith and worship. What do we conclude? Should we conclude that because the blessing is, is, is upon them, that it doesn't matter what we believe or what we do? No. We are able to say, insofar as Christ is being preached, we should all the more rejoice. And to his own master, he will stand or fall. Um, I wanted to say much more um, on the matter of uh, following after men today than I was able to get written down. But you, you know that this is a problem, especially in the church today, when we seek to follow men and names. And so that uh, when, when, when some person, when some ministry is on the rise and doing well and saying what he ought to say, well, we are, we are proud to approve of them. Uh, when somebody who for years uh, stumbles at this or that makes a mistake of judgment in this or the other thing, uh, it's easy for us to write them off and uh, to uh, say, well, you know, he's not following with us. Uh, feeling the distance rather than the closeness. Uh, I mentioned uh, Al Mohler very approvingly a couple of weeks ago, how thankful I was for what he's done in the Southern Baptist Church, right? Coming down, coming to Southern Seminary when there were very few Bible-believing professors there, Cle cleaning house, turning things around, uh, taking a very bold stand that cost him, uh, having a very vigorous ministry, and um, how much I do appreciate all that. Uh, of course, some folks pointed out later um, yeah, but he's, some of his statements of, of late have not been good, and uh, not all of his professors are also um, teaching all that is right, and, and, and that is certainly true. And we, and we look at people like Moeller, and, and what, what are we to say? Uh, are we to embrace their errors? No. Uh, are, are we to write them off and say, well, he is not following us? No. We, we have to have this more nuanced and understanding uh, openness of heart. That there, that there are people who are not teaching the right thing or doing it the right way that uh, are not following the way that they should. And yet we have, to, we have to be able to say on balance that they are with us and not against us. They are on Christ's side. There is no doubt about that. Whatever errors they claim, we do not approve. But insofar as Christ is preached, we must rejoice. 
Some people jump on the Calvin bandwagon when they come across his writings and say, hey, where's this guy been all my life? Some people, when they find out some more of the negative things that, they've, that uh, he's written on this or that, uh, they, they throw him off and go on to somebody else who's probably not even as faithful as Calvin was, right? Uh, th this is something to which we, we are prone, which is, at the end of the day, following men and not following the Lord Jesus. Insofar as Christ has preached, we should all the more rejoice but to his own master, each one must stand or fall. The truth is we are not following men, but following Jesus. And when we ask, is this man on Jesus' side? If the answer is yes, then we have to say that he's on our side too, without approving of his errors. In conclusion, there are two great dangers on either side of this teaching. And I'd like to illustrate both of them to you as we conclude. Um, we can, on the one hand, adopt the spirit of the disciples and uh, simply write off as unfaithful, not part of us anyway, this large part of the believing church, because there are manifest sins and stains to be found. Or we can go in this other direction and conclude that it doesn't matter what we do, as long as we all have the name of Jesus, it's cool. Both of these ideas are wrong. And I'd like to give you two examples of great men who failed on one side or the other, men that you should already know, men that I've spoken about. I looked it up on my um, files here uh, five years ago, I believe. Both great men, both of them very well worth your reading. Uh, Robert Raymond first pointed out to me the contrast in them. Arthur Pink was born in England in 1886, studied briefly at the Moody Institute in Chicago. He began preaching and pastoring in the United States while a very young man. And it was during this period that he wrote his celebrated book, The Sovereignty of God, which if you haven't read, you should. Early on, he began also publishing a monthly magazine called Studies in the Scriptures, of which he was not only the editor, but the sole contributor for 31 years. Most of, most of these have been published uh, as books, and these are in print, if you would like to pick them up. Pink spent several years, as I said, in the U.S., two years in Australia without a public ministry. He found out that uh, for a period of time anyway, he could not associate himself with any Christian church, and things just got worse the older he got. At last, he returned to Britain um, for eight years, hoping to find something there. He could not. He returned to America, where he had very little public ministry and most of his time was spent in almost total isolation. Finally, he retired to Stornoway, Scotland, where he and his wife lived the last 12 years of his life, where he was once again unable to associate himself with any Christian church. At, at one point, he, he wrote to a friend, quote, It's now been 17 years since my dear wife and I partook of the Lord's Supper. We feel it keenly. And God means us and all his people to feel the awful character of the times in which we are living. When the departure from the true faith is almost universal. Pink was a great man, a sterling Christian in many ways. A writer I benefit from today. He, he however, does as his life goes on, show precious little regard for the believing church or even charity for other Christians. And during those last 12 years of his life in Stornoway, 
he and his wife lived just streets away from one of the best, purest, godliest churches in the world of that day, a church pastored by Kenneth McRae, whose biography Ian Murray edited. Uh, a, a wonderful free church in Stornoway in a remarkably godly community, but all that was not good enough for Pink. That's a rather extreme example, but it makes an important point. You simply cannot be a faithful Christian by regarding all those who are still on Christ's side as unfaithful. Or take the opposite example. Alexander White, uh, Free Church of Scotland minister. The, the Free Church in those uh, days, this is in the 19th century, was born of a great schism in the disruption of 1843. Dr. White was only a boy then. And uh, later as a pastor, he had a great fear of division, of schism. He said that it was usually a sin in itself and always the occasion of sin. He spoke very strongly against the whole spirit of division. He was a great and godly and good man and brought people together and was a, was a true um, statesman of the church. Uh, many of his writings are also in print. I highly recommend them to you. Uh, such a great gospel man. However, if you could fault Alexander White for anything, is that he made exactly the same mistake as Arthur Pink made on the opposite side. Because there, there, there was this time when he had tremendous influence in the church, not only as a uh, minister at uh, one of its most important churches, but also a professor at, its, at the seminary, and then for years, the moderator of the Free Church of Scotland. It was in those very days that he refused to go to war for the church's purity at a time when German critical theology, higher criticism so-called, was being introduced into their seminary, into their church. Uh, people began saying very, very bad things about the scripture and about the miracles of Jesus and a number of other matters. But, but they did, he said, name the name of Christ. They were eminently pious, godly men. And he, he, he said, they are still my brothers. And he was sure that the, that the church, the great free church of Scotland, would remain steadfast in its loyalty to the Bible, even if some were teaching some new theories. And he lent his considerable prestige as moderator of the free church in those years to the side that did not want to make any issue to those things. He believed all things. Pink, I mean, uh, White hoped all things. White himself never embraced any of the new theories about the Bible. But he paved the way for many others to do so, and he made it possible for them to become ministers in the church and teachers in the seminary, and there was a mighty collapse in the Free Church of Scotland. Years later, as an old man, he, he wondered what, what had become of his beloved church. Where did our old loyalties to the scriptures go? What happened to our confession of faith? Where is the great evangelical preaching in the pulpit? He seemed unaware to the end that he himself had been a major contributor to the collapse, the catastrophe, because he was unwilling to draw the line and to fight for the truth of Christ at the very moment when it was still holding the field 
it was his desire to hold together, in fact, a mixed church under the banner of the name of Christ that ultimately became the reason for his, for his demise. Not to take the blame away from the professors in the Free Church Seminary who led a generation of ministers astray. Simply to say that probably would not have happened if white had taken the stand. Now what are we to do? What's the right course? The scripture teaches us that in so many ways we must be both Arthur Pink and Alexander White at one and the same time. That we must be passionate about the truth of God and zealous for our faithfulness to it. And that can never be cooled. Consider Jesus himself. Consider Paul in his writings. Passionate for purity. And on the other hand, we must extend Christian brotherhood to all those who, as Paul wrote, are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That we too, like Paul, who, who wrote that to the Corinthian church, you notice in our call to worship, despite all of their problems, all of their errors, their spirit of division, their confusion, corruption, false teaching, and yet, even to them. So, are we to embrace that they are as we are, sanctified in Christ Jesus, that we are nevertheless together called to be holy with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. These are our brethren. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, pray once again that you would bless our church with this passion for purity and discernment with a corresponding uh, passion for the brotherhood, uh, the uh, love and uh, approval of all those who preach the name of Christ in truth. We, we do pray for the healing and for the uh, um, renewing of the Church of Christ. We pray that we might be able to play some small role in it. Uh, we pray that you would keep us from the fires of envy and jealousy that burn our hearts to, uh, our, to, to no good. Those who are causing uh, our hearts to look down and to despise them, uh, we pray that you would forgive us for such thoughts if they are, in fact, not only with us, but with you. We also pray that you would uh, bless those whom Christ has chosen to bless. Uh, we pray that you would bless them with, uh, with strength, with fidelity to the truth, with an open heart, with a desire to, to join together with the church of all ages, confessing that faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, that we might together advance his name. We thank you again for the teaching of your word through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's conclude, please, with the uh, closing psalm. I forgot that uh, we were going to be singing this tonight when I suggested we sing it in Sunday school. How about we, how about we uh, conclude with a different one? 119b, how can a young man cleanse his way? 119b. Stand as we sing.
peace and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, sir.